Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Professor Christine Fair has come over to us from Georgetown for a very fleeting visit to Australia. Um, so very long, almost, I think probably more time on planes than on the ground, maybe. Um, and she's Provost Distinguished Associate Professor in Security Studies Program at Georgetown in the Edmund, Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. I'm glad that we just have departments of such and such and we don't have all that extra stuff because it takes too long to introduce people when they have come from them. Anyway, um, Christine has a very diverse, has had a very diverse and interesting career doing various different things. I think you said to me the other day that this is your third career. Probably. Probably. <laughs> Having been uh, a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, uh, political officer of the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, Kabul, and having worked for USIP as well in the Center for Conflict Analysis and Prevention. She spent most of the last, what, six, eight months, something along those lines, traveling backwards and forwards to India, She's recently been in Myanmar as well. Uh, where else have you been? All over the place. Place. Spent a lot of time in India. But yeah, a lot of time in, in India recently. Uh, has spent a great deal of time in Pakistan up till 2013 when she was prevented from going back to Pakistan again and that ban still stands mm-hmm. for the moment. Um, so today is going to talk about the families of Lashkar Toiba and also essentially looking at the, the these the fighters themselves, where they come from, uh, who they are, what their backgrounds are, uh, how they're recruited, where they're recruited from, and a whole range of, of uh, things, data that you've managed to find burrowing away into all of these amazing documents that they themselves produce and are produced on them. So I think what I might do is just hand over to you if, you've, okay. if you're feeling sufficiently mm-hmm. rushed. Um, Otherwise I can just gibber on for a bit longer. It's <laughs> all good. Okay, I'll hand over to you. All right, in the middle of a swallow. Um, so are any of you else doing sort of document exploitation? Some people. There are some people in the room who are like, so like Tista's one of my PhD students. And, uh, so there's a few people in the room who are kind of, who've done this kind of work oh, or okay. are doing it or should be doing it. Okay. <laughs> so then I will talk a little bit about some of the, the problems and perils of using this stuff. So thank you, Ian. Ian was, has very generously put together this wonderful tour of Australia. Uh, it's very unusual for a colleague to do that. So you guys have a really awesome colleague in Ian, and I'm very grateful for all of the, the footwork that he did. So turning to the Lushker, do you all know what this organization is? Everyone, does anyone not? And it's totally cool if you wouldn't, because, like, why would you? Anyone not know who the Lushker is? Yeah. Okay. So if you were watching TV on uh, thank- the American Thanksgiving of 2008, you would have been following in one way or another, because they were even like breaking up football to make announcements about it. The, uh, this is the group that basically held Mumbai siege for about four days. I would argue that much of the duration of that siege had as much to do with the incompetence and ineptitude of Indian forces 
as it was the competence of this organization. Uh, that's a, a whole other discussion, however. So this is the this may have been the attack that you may have learned about. You also had a a guy who was caught in Afghanistan by the Americans, and he spent a lot of time in Guantanamo. He, despite his commitment to not write a book and profit from his experience, he did exactly that. So there have been a number of LET persons who've had ties to Australia. But a couple of brief things about the particular organization, because it's important to understand where they situate themselves in the landscape of the jihad. So a lot of Indians will say that the ISI created this organization. That's not really true. It's very similar to the Taliban. It came into existence on its own juice, but once it uh, drew the attention of the ISI, the ISI understood the utility of the organization and made it a lot more lethal. So we think that this organization came to existence around 1986. We say around because there's no official biography of the organization. We don't have any official documents about when it was founded. And when people interview different parties, they have slightly different recollections of it. And this is because probably at the time, it wasn't necessarily momentous. So we, we don't know the exact time. But we do know that in Kunar, which is a state, a, a province in Afghanistan, these two organizations, MDI, as well as this uh, militia, a Lashkar, combine their forces to, to form this organization. And they have in common that they are, that both of them were LA Hadith. So I'll just make a very brief statement of overview. So in Pakistan, there are roughly five interpretive traditions. So one is LA Hadith. We don't know how many. Pakistanis are actually members of this interpretive tradition because A, Pakistan censuses uh, don't ask it, and if they did, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I would you know, trust the answers, frankly. And Pakistan censuses are always out of date. Uh, they're, they're done late. They're done dubiously. They're done for political reasons. So the scholarly estimate is probably 5% of Pakistanis are members of or profess this tradition, which is important. But there is scholarly consensus that it's a, a number that's very small and very south of 10. The next group are the Deobandis. The Deobandis in Pakistan are very different from the Deobandis in India, even though Deoband has its origins in India. Again, we don't have any actual way of knowing, but generally scholars put this number at still a minority, well below 50%. The next group are the Brailvis, and sometimes they're referred to with the shorthand of Sufis, and so sometimes when people talk about um, supporting the moderate Sufis, which is a policy that many Americans have espoused, I laugh because the Sufis in Pakistan are not peaceful. Whenever there is a hangama around blasphemy, usually there's a Brailvi behind it. When Salman Tassir, the governor of the Punjab, was murdered for defending a woman that was likely falsely accused of blasphemy. In any event, she was a Christian, so there's a debate on whether or not non-Muslims can be accused of uh, being a blasphemer. He was murdered, and he was murdered by a Brailvi, and the Brailvis, uh, in his order, were, you know, celebrated uh, this murder. It is still believed that Brailvis are a majority of Pakistanis, again, with that caveat. Another way of kind of getting at the important market share of these different religious traditions is through data stored by the Mahakma Akaf, which 
provides information about the inventory of religious institutions. So if we were to look at the numbers of, of institutions, the Brailvies have, a, have an inordinate share because of the presence of shrines. Then finally, there's a, a mixture of different, sh well not finally, uh, there's one more group, Jamaat Islami, which is both a political party, but it's also treated as a Muslim. And then finally, Shia. And under the category of Shia, there, there are several different uh, strains of Shia Islam. And generally, Shias in Pakistan, they <coughs> tend to look towards Najaf in Iraq rather than Gom in Iran. So another way that we might get at the, the distribution of the people across these Muslims is by looking at, say, for example, madrasa data, madrasa registration data. The problem with that is that we don't really think that every madrasa is registered. And so you kind of you have to sort of look at these different data sources and then just use some common some common sense. One of the reasons why, for example, the Shia estimates in Pakistan are always wildly different. If you look at public opinion surveys that look at estimates of Shia, you get a very small number, actually well below 15%. Um, in fact, considerably lower than that. If you look at official estimates coming from Pakistan, the number will be much higher, sometimes as high as 25%. So this is a huge range. And one of the reasons for that is, y'all have been perhaps listening to the news about Kashmir. The part of Kashmir that Pakistan administers, Gilgit-Baltistan, has a very large percentage of Shia. Again, I'm not saying minority or majority because we don't know, because Pakistan does not include that part of the country in its census. So even if you assume that every single resident of Gilgit-Baltistan was Shia, it's still very hard to come up with some of these north, these higher estimates of the percentage of Shia. So the other thing that's important about LET is that it was always separate in its training camps in Afghanistan. So the other group, the Brailvies, um, which in fact most of the groups operating in Pakistan are Deobandi. Um, the Deobandis include the Pakistan Taliban, they include the Afghan Taliban, they include Jaish Muhammad, they include the sectarian groups like Sipay Sabay Pakistan, and they also have a political party that represents the ulama interests of the, the Deobandi ulama. So the, the Taliban are Deobandi, and when Osama bin Laden relocated to Afghanistan, Mullah Omar was very dubious about what uh, Osama bin Laden was going to do, so he brought him closer. So in 1998, when the Americans bombed the Al-Qaeda camp at Khost in retaliation for the 1998 embassy bombings, we didn't kill any Al-Qaeda members, but we killed uh, some Dale Bundy groups that operate in Kashmir as well as our ISI handlers. This is kind of an important part of the story of why India is so apprehensive about what happens in Afghanistan, because what happens in Afghanistan rarely stays in Afghanistan, and India has paid the price of the co-location of these myriad Deobundi groups with Al-Qaeda. So I go through this just to make you aware of the different militant groups operating in this marketplace of militants, and that Lashkar Taiba, while it is ideologically closer to Al-Qaeda than, say, the Deobundis are, they are, in fact, separate, and they've largely always been. And some people will know, but there are some individual connections, but I could also argue that those individual connections exist for, for other interpretive traditions too, but we don't use those to assert a tight linkage with Al-Qaeda. So this, just to give you a sense of the map 
and how Lushker operates. So when it is doing its killing, it primarily kills in Indian-administered Kashmir, and it's also conducted high-profile attacks outside of Kashmir throughout India. And it also conducts limited attacks in Afghanistan. Uh, the organization was very reticent to do that because one of the important things about Lushkar that's not so well appreciated is that it has an important domestic political role. And it is very much opposed to the Deobundis. One of the central reasons is that the Deobundis practice takfir, which is this, this practice of saying a Muslim is um, no longer a Muslim, he's a kafir, and therefore liable to be killed, just like ISIS. So Lushkar at Taiba is at odds with ISIS as well as these Deobundis. And for them to operate in Afghanistan, remember the Afghan Taliban is Deobundi, they would have to have their, their soldiers in proximity to these Deobundis. And they've been always worried about sort of uh, ideological diffusion. So LET operates what I would say the bare minimum number of attacks in Afghanistan to keep its constituents happy while also insulating most of its fighters from this Deobundi influence. The place where it absolutely conducts no attacks whatsoever is Pakistan itself. And it makes it very different from this milieu of Dale Bundy fighters. Most, as I said, of the attacks that happen in Afghanistan that are being done by Islamists are being done by Dale Bundys. This is also true of communal attacks. When people talk about communal, it, it sometimes is shorthanded with uh, Muslim on non-Muslim violence or sectarian is within sects of Islam. But whether you're looking at communal violence or whether you're looking at sectarian violence, the perpetrator is almost always Deobundi and the victims are, are myriad. So this is one of the things that makes LET so important to Pakistan's deep state is not only is it opposed to violence within Pakistan, it's a very pro-state organization, it also is very much a well-behaved dog, a tag dog operating an ISI's leash. And this is a huge advantage over the other organizations that the state has used over the years, which doesn't have that organizational discipline. But it also uses the rest of the, the, the world to do a variety of other functions. So if you are in the United Kingdom, there's a lot of support for this organization, particularly through the diaspora, a particular group called Mirpuris. They raise money for this organization as well as other Kashmiri militant outfits. In Southeast Asia, this is sort of like a back office. So if you're a Pakistani and you need to get to India to conduct an operation and you're not simply crossing the LOC, you might go to, say, Bangkok, hand in your Pakistani passport, get a fake Indian passport, and then go in. And then if you have to exfiltrate, you might repeat that. The Gulf is also a major source of fundraising. It doesn't matter if you are a listed terrorist you still have a fundamental human right to do Hajj and Umrah, which is something that Saudi Arabia points out about why it cannot crack down on the various uh, terrorists rotating in and out of Saudi Arabia, also bringing with them sacks of money. So while the sharp end of the spear focuses mostly on India and some extent in Afghanistan, it does have a larger space in which it can play and draw resources. So these are some of the attacks. These are what I would call the most important attacks the organization has done. But I would say um, up until this year, when Jaish al-Muhammad became a more significant player, the Lashkar Taiba certainly led if we were to look at metrics like victim yield, right, which is the number of people killed per attacker. 
So until Jaisha Muhammad re-entered of late, this organization certainly had the largest market share of attacks, and particularly the largest market share of significantly sanguinary attacks. So this chart, or this graphic here, sort of summarizes some of my earlier comments about how LET is quite distinct from the other militants operating in and from Pakistan. And, and this arguably is another thing that makes the organization so useful to the deep state. So LET is a you know, long oval to the right, and the larger oval in which it's connected is the larger LA Hadith community in Pakistan. Remember, we believe that they are a small number, about 5%. But what we do know is that the religious leaders of the LA Hadith tradition overwhelmingly, with very few exceptions, denounce non-state violence. They believe that violence can only be waged by an Islami riyasat, by an Islamic state. So this means that while LA Hadith may have madrasas and mosques, LET can't draw from it. So LET instead has to have its own infrastructure. And this makes it much more dependent upon the resources of the ISI. In contrast, these Bundy outfits, as I mentioned, they have the largest market share of madrasas, which are very lucrative. Don't let anyone tell you differently. These madrasas uh, are, are often very large complexes. They're owned by families who own the land. People, instead of paying their taxes to the state, will pay zakat in kind or in monetary donations to these madrasas. And they will also have um, a lot of What's the word I'm looking for? Um, they'll have private sector enterprises on the property of the madrasas. So for example, you'll have marriage halls, you'll have laundry services, you'll have bookstalls, you'll have high-end and low-end dining establishments. And those, those private sector enterprises pay money to the madrasa management. So having a madrasa, and particularly being the family owner of a madrasa is a really important source of money. And that's why, for example, you'll see in the federally administered tribal areas, people who owned madrasas became very, very wealthy. And so the madrasa economy is something I've done quite a bit of work on, and unfortunately it's, it's terribly uh, misunderstood. But because of the resources through these madrasas and mosques, Deobundis have a lot more resources at their disposal and unlike the difference between LET and the ulama community, the Deobandi groups have very little daylight between them and the ulama, and they have a political party. So they have a lot more resources that make them harder to control than this particular outfit. And notably, by the way, it's LET, these Deobandi groups that are running off and joining the Islamic State, while LET has declared war against the, the Islamic State. Quite literally, they've declared war. So this business card, I like to, to show, um, I got this business card from Yahya Mujahid. He is specifically declared a terrorist by the UN Security, you know, there are various designating committees of the UN Security Council. He had already been designated during my last meeting with him, and he's passing out this business card. And you can see, I like this because it gives you the different locations where Mr. Mujahid can be found and, and can be found actively. So this is just one thing. If you follow their Twitter feed or other social media where they operate when they're not being deplatformed, you will see Hafiz Saeed, particularly Hafiz Saeed, 
running around freely, and you'll often see him disporting with official uh, Pakistani security forces, whether per particularly the Punjab police, they have a special commando unit, and you will see these guys uh, providing security to the organization. So when Pakistan says, oh, we don't support terrorism, all you need to do is go to their Twitter feed and find ample evidence that this is a canard. And I mean canard not in the duck kind of canard, which is delicious, the irritating kind of canard. I love homophones. All right, so let's talk about my data very briefly, what they are and what they aren't. So anyone working in this space with these biographies, you first have to understand the milieu in which they circulate to figure out, are they truthful? Are they propaganda? What do we do with these things? How do we understand them? So in the years I've been working on this group and hanging out in Pakistan, they're really both. Right? They are intended to honor the, the slain uh, for this organization, but they're also meant as a propaganda tool. And they're meant as a propaganda tool in at least two ways. One is glorifying the deeds of the person who's been killed, but the other is glorifying the family members who, in most cases, and by the time the, the biographies are written up, they've been all converted to the glories of the jihad. So this is why when I'm writing, when I've written the book, I'm talking about they're not only recruiting the person, but they're also thinking about the family as a whole. And they do a lot of things to make the families, uh, the Lusker families, try to get other families to do what they're doing. They, they rather, so in other words, let me put it to you this way. If you look at the way a traditional military operates, we generally put recruitment resources on the individual. When we've had a recruitment constraint as we did in the United States in 2004, and in full disclosure, when I was at the Bland Corporation, I worked on military recruitment, retention, and compensation, and both of my brothers are army recruiters. So I, I sort of putting out my priors, I do come at this with a very strong um, labor market approach and understanding them as just manning a mission. We do go after the families in the United States, and particularly in a couple of conditions. We overwhelmingly prefer to get them in high school. So both of my brothers signed on the line when they were 16. This is why the Americans don't sign on to the Convention Against Child Warriors. And we do that because once they go to high school, once they graduate from high school, they have other options. So recruiters will tell you if we were to sign the convention, we would have a lot of difficulty making admission, particularly when the economy is good and particularly when we have active deployments to unpopular uh, battlegrounds. So if you were in the United States in 2004 when we were having difficulty making mission, you would have seen TV commercials that were specifically targeting the American mom. And the reason for this is, you get them at 16, you have to have both parents sign. Military recruiters will tell you, dad doesn't usually care, dad is happy to sign. It's the mom who's very, you know, well what if Jessica goes to Afghanistan and she has to shoot someone? What if she comes back without a leg? Who will marry her? And so, you know, these are real things that parents worry about. And so the commercials went after allaying usually these mothers' fears. And I must tell you that even if I hadn't had that background, I would have come to the same conclusion because Lushker spends an awful lot of time on the mothers. They are also adamant that before they go on a mission that the mother has to bless the mission. Right. So 
a lot of these biographies are written by the mothers themselves. And so you have this dual instrument of propagandizing to other mothers so that they'll encourage their sons to join, while also prop you know, propagandizing to other young men that they should aspire to the heroism in here. So you have to make some pretty important decisions that you document well about your assumptions so that other scholars can disagree with you in a transparent way. But then you also have to figure out, what do you do with the content of this stuff? Once you've kind of figured out what's its job, what's it doing in the world, you have to ask yourself, do I really believe the claim that my young man, you know, repelled or dispatched, you know, 30 kufar with a dare adult pencil, right? Did this really happen? And so what I did, and we documented it very clearly, particularly in this project that we did with the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, we said, look, these are the things that we think are less likely to be fraudulent. And you can go in, if you disagreed with us in any particular record, you can go in and delete that record and redo the analysis. But we generally assumed that there was no incentive to lie about where they were from, what their education background was, where they recruited, where they fought. Um, we generally took at face value their education level and any employment history. We excluded any information that was about the actual combat details because they were so over the top and so preposterous. So you have to, going into this kind of work, be really honest with yourself and with your potential consumers about the decisions that you made. And so these are some of the decisions that we made. All right, so the other thing that's important for you to think through is what, excuse me, I have some rocket between my teeth, is what the statisticians would call dependent variable selection bias. Do you all know what dependent variable selection bias is? Who doesn't? It's okay if you don't. Okay. I did my PhD in the humanities, so I had to learn all this stuff too. So, but I always say if, if a person who did their dissertation on the Punjabi historical novel can figure out DV selection bias, so, so should people like Sage. <coughs> all right. So the most important thing that you have to do to end up in my database. It's pretty obvious. Die. You have to die. <laughs> now, this, this might seem trivial, but with this organization, more important than killing others, it's that you die. So let's take the duffer, and I'm gonna call him a duffer because he is a duffer, uh, from, and, he, and he's unusual in his dufferness. And how do I say, and know he's a duffer? You can actually go, and here, the cell phone transcripts of the operation of these terrorists in Mumbai or going through the hotels and the different targets. These are gentlemen that came right out of the pen, you know, right out of the village. And these guys, they had never seen such opulence. And you can, you hear them in their handler, and they were told to keep their phones on. And during the entire operation, they're like, oh my God, I've never seen a TV like this. And then the handler is barking at them, set it on fire. Um, <laughs> I've never, that's a, people take a bath here? Go kill some Kufar. I mean, it, it, you could, am I, anyone who, who has listened to the, the, the tapes, any South Asians that know Punjabi, am I wrong? <laughs> and you can tell from their accents that these guys were the most Pandu of the Pandu and the most villagers of the villagers. And I say this as a villager myself, right? But because the one duffer failed to die, which was arguably his most important task, we know so much about how the ISI was behind this operation, 
we know that actually for those of you who are really into terrorist tactics, the most fascinating part of this is that you could take these villagers who never even swam before. Pakistanis don't swim. Very few Indians swim. Like unless you have like a you know a, a, a membership to one of those clubs at the pool, this is just not something that people do. You'll see people cooling off in the canals, but you don't see people you know doing the breaststroke in the canal. So the, tactically, the most interesting thing that these that these guys learned to do was switch vessels at high seas. If you talk to people in the Navy, this is something that. Um, Someone in the Navy will take months to learn, right? And so these are people who probably have not been afraid of water, people who have swum most of their life, especially if you're in the Navy. You don't join the Navy if you're a hydrophobe. But these guys were able to do that. It's really, really remarkable. So obviously they had some tactical skills, but we would not know any of this had the duffer taken the bullet like he was supposed to, right? So the most important thing is actually to die. So you might think that ending up in my database is a sign of, of, of incompetence or ineptitude, but it's actually a sign that you conducted your mission as you, were supposed to as you were supposed to commit it. So the other thing, if you look at the kinds of operations that this group conducts, they're more like special operators. So this idea that they're coming from madrasas is absolutely ridiculous in most cases because of the kinds of operations typically require them to go into India, maintain OPSEC, operational security. Most of the operations are not conducted like the 08 attack where you had a bunch of dudes and their whole mission was to get off their boats, go kill, and be killed. Usually the operations do require living in India, sometimes exfiltrating and infiltrating back and forth, and every time you do that you're putting another selection effect because it's so hard to get in and out of that border without getting killed. And I don't think it counts um, if you just get ambushed crossing the border. I, I, you know, I keep asking some of the Lushkers on Twitter, and then they keep blocking me because they don't like my pesky questions. But I actually don't know. Do you get the virgins if you get shot before you conduct an operation? I don't know. We don't know. Um, and we, unless we do a seance, I guess we'll never know. Do they at least get a thank you? They do. Actually, they do. The parents do get paid when this happens, but are they accoladed? They probably are accoladed as Shahids. But this goes to my point that there are so many layers of selection with these guys that we would not expect that the characteristics that I'm about to show you typify everyone that wanted to join the organization or that managed to join the organization. Also importantly, when, when my brothers got sent to Iraq, they didn't have to say, oh, hey, I really want to go to Iraq. I'm jonesing for this. What Big Army said was, you are at least in paper MOS qualified, and therefore we are, we are shipping you off. These guys, it doesn't work like that. Um, you have to keep going back and forth with the command structure, and there's like a district commander who's in charge of each of these young men, and they have to keep going back to ask for more training. Once they've done more training, they have to ask to be missioned. And so these guys are also bureaucratic entrepreneurs, right? So in other words, if, um, if I do the big old normal curve, they have definitely lobbed off a lot of the duffers, and they've just moved the, the, the human capital curve to the right, right, your left. And this is also true of the U.S. Army. Everyone takes this thing called an ASVAB. And general, general high school students will take it. If you compare the average ASVAB score 
across everyone that took it to the average ASVAB score of people in the Army, it's much higher for the same reason. Um, and, and you know, think about this. Even McDonald's doesn't hire the most incompetent duffer to steam burgers, right? Because they, as long as you have more people that want that job than you have slots, you can select on quality. And my colleague, Ethan Bueno de Mosquito, wrote this fabulous paper. It was largely theoretical. Um, but the argument, the paper was called The Quality of Terror. And it, it talks about how it is that you could have a country like Pakistan, which is overwhelmingly poor, but when you actually look at the terrorists, the terrorists themselves are not poor, right? So poor countries might be more likely to produce terrorists, but the terrorists themselves, relative to the population from which they draw, are not poor because of this, you know, as, as long as there are more folks than not, you can do this, right? So let's just very quickly talk about who these guys are. Um, so these, so this is important for our Kashmir discussion. You'll see that thing over there called Jammu and Kashmir to the right. It's mostly white, meaning that there are no LET terrorists, except for very small numbers. And oh, by the way, this is aggregated from 1993 to 2004, right? So which means that for that entire 11-year period, we have very few militants, terrorists coming from Jammu and Kashmir. Oh, contraire, the vast majority of them are coming from the Punjabi, from the from the state of the Punjab, the province of the Punjab, and uh, the vast majority of them are coming from 10 districts in the Punjab. And so this is a heat map, so the darker the red means more terrorists are coming from that district. So this is important when Pakistan says, oh, you know, these are actually Kashmiris fighting. Um, no, they're not. They're actually Punjabis. All right, so let's look at some of their human capital characteristics. So my guys, only 1.3% of them are illiterate. In contrast, uh, Pakistani males, whether we're looking at urban, rural, Punjabi males, rural, urban, anywhere between 21% and 36% are illiterate. Right. So this is that effect I told you about of just lopping off the duffers. Being a matriculate is an important um, uh, accomplishment in the educational uh, attainment of Pakistanis because it's after matriculation or the 10th grade when Pakistanis will go off and they'll begin differentiating. So the next thing that you'll do will be um, 10 plus 2, which is the FA. And so this is when, if you want to go to medical school, you'll start hiving off towards medical school. If you want to be an accountant, you'll, you'll go in that direction. Uh, so 44% of my guys um, are matriculates. And this is in comparison to anywhere between 11% and 18%. And by the time we get to intermediate and above, we, we see the effects of this of this shift. But I don't want to remember, keeping in, in mind all of the selection effects, we cannot say that everyone that is in the organization that wants to join the organization looks like this. All right, so I'm just going to, um, we've talked about who they are, we've talked about what they are and where they come from, but there's a limit to the quantitative data. Nice meeting you. Um, there's a limit to what the quantitative data can tell us about why they fight. And so this is actually part of the, the next big project. So for this book, I only did, um, I, I did different 10% random samples. And so the next part of what I'm doing is going through the translations of all 800 of these things. And this is actually kind of a nuisance because I have to standardize the translations. I'll probably do some textual analysis, a computer assistant textual analysis, as well as using my, my, my eyes, and we'll see which ones work out better. So a couple of things. Some of these guys are just sociopaths. 
And, for example, one of my favorite sociopath examples is a mother who's missing her son um, and his sense of humor. And the sense of humor comprised killing small animals and torturing the village children with them. Right? She might think that's funny. Usually that's diagnosable as a sociopathic tendency. But they're very rare. A lot of these guys are just bored. They're, you, you hear, I just, I'm very unfulfilled working in my uncle's shop. There's got to be something more to life than this. We see this in the U.S. Army. There's a joke-slash-bumper sticker. Um, Travel the world, meet interesting people, and kill them. Join the U.S. Army. Right? Right? I mean, there's a lot of these analog. A lot of this stuff. We just have analogs in regular military recruitment, which is why you don't ever hear me use the word radicalize. I hate the word. I don't use it. But then, in that category of, of I'm bored, I'm looking for something else. We do see some people who add to it, and so these are these are secular motivations, right? There's nothing special about, you know, go to India, meet interesting people, and behead them. Um, but we do see people who have religious motivations. Like they will either be appalled with something that's going on in their family. Like it's very common. My sisters roam around with men. My brothers do pundi, which means like I don't know how to describe that word. Just a general class of foul behaviors with respect to women, which can range from catcalling to like gawking, uh, all the way to like you know full-on booty grabs and, and other anatomical seizures. So you'll see men that are that are young men that are like, all this crap is happening in my family. I can't abide by it, and. And often this opening is facilitated by meeting a lushker through school or through some social thing. By the way, in the U.S., we call this the buddy system. My brothers will tell you it's always better to have dudes come in, and sometimes gals come in the buddy system because they're more likely to complete the training. They're less likely to attract. Another odd thing, and this is uniquely spiritual. We can't call it anything else, and it's very Pakistani. There's this notion that some actions allow you to intercede on behalf of your family, which is to say when you die, you get to go to heaven and say, hey, Allah, I'd like you to bring, and they have different numbers um, for different activities. So another way that you can get folks to go to heaven with you, even if they don't deserve it, is if you memorize the Quran and you become a hafiz. So you see a lot of people saying, I'm going to go to Allah, and I'm going to intercede for you. And if you embarrass me, by not living like good Muslims, it's going to be really upsetting for us all. And so you'll see um, this is almost like emotional blackmail, right? I'm giving you a free pass to heaven. It would be nice if you looked a little bit like you may have actually deserved it on your own steam. We also see mothers, and this is going back to the whole recruitment of the family and how important it is. Mothers will say to their sons, I don't want you to come back a Ghazi. I want you to be a Shaheed. And so this would be like um, a U.S. mother saying to their son, I want you to come back in a coffin because I want to be a gold star mom, right? It says no mom ever, which raises questions about the authenticity. The other thing that the mothers will say is that um, I want the status of being a Shaheed's mother. Um, it, there's a status of being a Ghazi's mother, but being a Shaheed's mother or also a sister, a sister of a Shahid or a father Shahid um, is also important, but the status of being a mother of Shahid is very important. And you'll find references throughout these to women saying, I want to be like Al Khansa. And Al Khansa was a contemporary of the Prophet. She was a poet, but she's mostly notorious, not for her, just for her poetry, because she also tossed every family, male family member, uh, to the Prophet who died subsequently in different chronic battles. And then finally, and going back to that map about the concentration from the Punjab, 
we do see a lot of history from partition coming up. And so there'll be references specifically to it. Obviously stylized, I, I, that is to say not entirely accurate references. And we'll also see references to current Indian behavior, like saving Muslims from occupiers. Thank you. That's it. Oh, yeah. good. Okay. Oh, no. Right. Was I was going to give that... you another warning. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. I saw it before you. my eye. All right. I was trying to... Yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Okay. So, look, we've got a bit of time for questions uh, and comments, and we also should allow Chris to have a bit of, a, a bit of lunch <laughs> um, as well. So, lots of things raised as well, and I, you don't mind answering a question or two on Kashmir if you... <laughs> if you have. We've been doing that all week, I know, but um, maybe... As a view. Yeah. Some of the questions are better fielded to you. <laughs> So, um, okay, so who would like to start? Um, so, yeah, I'm from Pakistan. I'm Lahore. Yeah, I'm from Lahore, actually. Um, Thank you, to talk about the, the, the capital, the human capital of these uh, organizations that are the so duffers and the duffers. Don't you see, like, for the, it varies um, uh, from attack to attack, especially, like, um, if you if you want to do a blast, you know, self-blowing up. For that, you need basically the first and mm -hmm. all kind of attacks in like Mumbai oppressions of in Afghanistan to you know alongside with the Afghan Taliban to attack the U.S. personnel there and to attack in the Jammu and Kashmir in Indian side. So those kind of um, the human capital that varies um, from uh, varies with the nature of attack these organizations they mm -hmm. want to conduct because for that you need very high precise yeah. highly trained people. Um, so you, you're absolutely right, yeah. and so that, that's the book that I'm working on now, which is Pakistan's militant markets, and that's exactly how I approach it. So the one thing about LET, though, remember, they do not do suicide attacks. This is a big myth. Um, they use the same word fidayin as yeah. the Dale Bundy groups do, but for the LET, a fidayin attack is they will go in. It's really more like a, a high-risk mission that a special operator unit will undertake. If they manage to live that engagement to kill more too far, that's fine. But the most important thing is that they don't live and they're not taken hostage. So let's take, for example, now, oh, by the way, some suicide attacks are very difficult. Um, let's say the low-end suicide attacks. And that's why, oh, by the way, many, you'll see Dale Bundy terrorists having connections to madrasas. So there's a couple of important madrasas in Karachi that produce some of these guys. So it's pretty, as you said, doesn't require a lot of human capital to go into a Shia mosque and blow yourself up. Yeah. What you need is someone that you trust, right? Someone who's not working for an intelligence agency. Someone you think is actually going to execute the attack. And therefore, these networks that, that you studied with so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such a madrasa might actually be very important. Now, there are some suicide attacks, though, that are very elaborate, but they're poorly executed. So let's take in Afghanistan, my favorite, the worst suicide bombers in the world are the Afghan Taliban. So they have these very elaborate plans, and they've been doing suicide attacks since 2005, but still one and two only kills himself. When they do kill, they kill a lot of people because the technology of killing has improved with, in terms of the explosives, the, the emplacement of shrapnel, and so forth. But a very classic suicide bombing um, operation involving the Taliban will be, let's say you've got three spheres of security. The first guy goes in, and I'm going to laugh because it is a little bit 
It's a little bit Benny Hill, for those of you of a certain age who know Benny Hill. First guy he's supposed to go in, he detonates. The next guy then runs, and he, you know, he blasts the wall. Second guy runs into the second perimeter, he blasts, and then the third guy goes into the target. Like this, for example, what was um, the tactic that was supposed to be executed when they tried to kill uh, Dick Cheney in um, 2006. Here's actually what happened. The fellows don't understand blast radius. So the first, yeah. Yeah. First fellow goes in, boom, Allahu Akbar, and he takes out his colleagues. Now, this happens all the time. Um, and you'd think that they'd figure out this thing, but they don't. And so it's not only is it a question of, and no, by the way, this is also why they stop using vehicle-borne IEDs, because it's very difficult to find Afghans who can drive. And by the time, if you see the cars in Afghanistan, they're, they're generally fairly lousy. And, and by the time you load up the ordinance and you wire it to the ignition, you have a thing that's very hard. And so they were constantly prematurely detonating. I warned you about Benny Hill. And that's why, the, the, even though they were going for a NATO convoy, the premature detonation meant that they took out a bunch of civilians. So you're absolutely right. And so that's why I don't use the word radicalize. I use the word manning a mission. And usually they are manning. Um, the Dale Bundys have used some women. And the other thing is that just like a regular military, you learn to kill once you join, right? So my brother at 16, he didn't. I mean, he couldn't even kill a deer properly, and we're from, you know, a deer hunting family. So he learned to kill and how to kill and under what conditions to kill only after he joined. So unless we're willing to say that the U.S. Army radicalized my brothers, I think we should not be saying that Lashkar Taiba radicalized these young men. Um, but, yeah, so we, you and I are, we had a mind meld there. <laughs> you wanna, and if you want to collaborate, I've got loads of data, and I love collaborating. <laughs> Thank you, Crystal. Thanks for coming. I've got two other questions. Three other questions. Has anybody else got any other questions? So you can keep signaling to me as we go through. So um, what's, we've got enough time to just take them one by one. So at all. Uh, yeah, just two small questions. Uh, the second last point which you said, I didn't understand. Like, mom said to the kids that you can come back as a guy's but come to the other You know, Salvation moms are very protective of their kids. Exactly. Mm -hmm. out of their way to save their kids. So how come these moms are like looking for a shade? What it does? It's a spouse and mother's thing, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, so no. This is what this is what I said. So going back to the first question, do we? So let's put it to you this way. Oh, I was a militant activist against the Iraq War. Right. If my brothers had died, I would. What would have that done to my views about the Iraq War? Right. Would have I said that they died serving, you know, Dick Cheney's wallet? How, I mean, how, how do you deal with the depression in such a context? I mean, I, I, and, I, and I go through this thing myself. Like, how would have I dealt with my brothers dying? Even thinking about it makes me get teary, right? I, could, I just couldn't even imagine it. So then I go to these mothers, right? What really happened when their sons died? And they, you know, by all evidence, they do give permission for them to go. Do we really believe that the mother said, and the expression that they use in the text is, take a bullet on the chest, that this is a very standard expression that the mother say? Do we really believe that they said that? Or do we think that the Lashkar Taiba wants us to believe that this is what the mother say? Okay, so this is where um, like ethnography, like um, Farhat Haq, 
did some really interesting work with the Mothers of the Lushker that, that was published in Signs many years ago. This is where ethnography is probably more useful here. And this is where, as I said, you have to just constantly keep your BS detectors because it is extraordinary that a mother would tell her son. And there are just countless examples where, in one case, the mother was able to contact his battlefield commander, and he didn't want to put the phone to the son because he was afraid that the mother was going to say, please don't die. But she says, no, 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 I'm not that kind of a mother. I'm an Alhansa. You tell my son to take a bullet on the chest. And um, so do we really think that the mother said that? We don't know. We only know that this is what they say. My suspicion is it's a combination of both because there are jihadi families, right, where the mothers have derived a lot of social capital from being the, you know, the, the Alhansa of the Mohalla. But there's also probably mothers who, like me, uh, are would be ex post facto creating a justification, right? Or quite frankly, there's a heavy the, there's a woman who is a really an let propagandist, and she edits these volumes called We the Mothers of the Lushkar. Or alternatively, is the editor going through and so these are things that we just don't know. Did we cut you off? You had another question, did you? Oh uh, yeah, the second one was. Uh what is the percentage of participation of uh, upper class of Pakistanis into this uh, NGOs and terrorist groups? So again, it's an observational problem, right? We have no way of knowing. So I've done survey work in Pakistan, and I can tell you that the people who are more likely to support this and other organizations, they tend to be urban, wealthy, middle class and above, and they tend to be better educated. The people who are most opposed, not not just to this group, but to groups in general, they tend to be the urban poor. And the and I think the reason, it's again, the LET is an exception to the urban poor thing because the LET doesn't conduct operations in Pakistan. But um, the urban poor disproportionately bear the negative externalities of terrorist attacks. Like where does Lashkar Junkie attack? Right? They go to Southern bazaars. They go to Ichira Bazaar. Um, they don't go to, it's very rare that, like, for example, uh, in 2010, there was a horrific attack in, um, I was actually there for it, in Model Town in Lahore, but it was targeting Emedes. But when they attacked Dr. Gunjbaksh, which is actually, I live near Dr. Gunjbaksh, it's, it's like old city Lahore, very poor, and that's where they conducted suicide attacks. So, that's part of the explanation why in Pakistan the urban poor are most likely to oppose these. Now, this is support for terrorism, right? Which is the demand for terrorism. It's not the supply. So we don't have a way of answering that question. And all, and I've got there's several databases. We have a his database. We have his, there's a, a sort of proto database on some of these Dale Bundies. They're all affected by this selection effect. Steve. This is talk, everything talk is uh, new to me. Um, in recent years, there's been a number of attacks on Chinese funded projects, either in the construction side or the construction of the buildings. Just wondering, what, what are the, the, the attitudes of these various groups on China, apart from the India and the US? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got data on that. It doesn't, it's not in this analysis. So 
Why? And so let's be very clear about where it's happening. It's happening mostly in Balochistan. And um, Balochistan has had various waves of insurgency. The most recent one begins in 2005 with a rape of a Baloch doctor, allegedly by pot mill officers. They are the Baloch. The, the Baloch province is about 40% of the land mass. The total population is about 5%, and that's using the 1998 census, which is way out of date. Uh, so the Baloch have had a history of having their resources appropriated. They're forced to sell their gas at below market price. Adjacent Sind gets a 30% premium. And they don't get their own gas hookups until a military installation comes to town, right? So the way in which Pakistan operates, because they have so little representation in the National Assembly, which is the house that has most of the power, equal representation in the Senate, but it's got no power, it has, as a consequence, they've been exploited. There's been very little development in the state. They are consistently, in, in terms of human capital measures, the lowest. If you look at gas stoves, if you look at toilets, any, any, any measure, the Baloch rank the lowest. The CPEC, and I will be very blunt, I'm not going to miss words, is not about enriching Pakistanis or improving their lives. It's really about enriching the Chinese. And it, it's very similar to what they're doing in Sri Lanka, what they'd like to do in Myanmar, what they'd like to do in Bangladesh, and what they've done in Djibouti. So if you are a bloach, you see that you have been systematically screwed over by your government, and then you see that they are willing to kill every bloach to make Balochistan safe for Chinese exploitation. The Chinese model is not to hire locals, it is to bring in, I mean, in Pakistan, they even bring in their own potatoes, right? So little contribution to the external market. And what Baloch feel, and of course there's the, what's happening at the Gwadar port itself, uh, Gwadar is water deficient. There's not enough water, in, um, which is going to limit the Gwadar settlement. They're also concerned about ethnic change, that a lot of Punjabi settlers are, are, are coming in. So there's all of these issues, some of which are simply a long-standing dispute between a, a province and the center. But when the Chinese activities are layered onto this, it's, it's an additional grievance. I will also be blunt. The Chinese do not treat the Pakistanis well. Um, the racism is palpable. They will, and I also have seen this in Afghanistan, they will bring in pork, which is just really a problem. The prostitution, also a problem. The internet is rife with Chinese assaulting Pakistani police officers who won't let them out of their garrison for their own safety to go visit prostitutes. So I, we could have a whole other segment about what people think of the Chinese. And the Chinese, for their part, there have been a lot of, and actually Ian knows this better than I do, his repository, <laughs> we share some monkey DNA, I think, because we both like, we both like crazy videos. Um, the Chinese have, have uh, launched a number of videos to try to improve their image. But as my mother would say, peace be upon her, you can put chocolate on a turd, it is not a donut. 
and it doesn't, Pakistanis aren't falling for it. So that's, does that sort of give you a little bit of flavor? And so there's two groups that are doing this. Um, one are these various Baloch militant groups that have been targeting the Chinese. Um, mostly, mostly it's them. Um, sometimes they get confused because there's a lot of violence in Balochistan. Lashkar Jungvi has been killing um, Hazara Shias. And then what the state has tried to do, the state has tried to set up faux Baloch groups that are engaging in violence. So if you're just engaging in a coding exercise, it's hard for you to know which are true Baloch militant groups or those that have been constituted by the state. Thank you. Um, Ian's got loads of awesome videos. I've, I've got it. <laughs> That's not a line that's easy to follow. <laughs> I just tipped over my coffee cup. Um, well, I find that fascinating. And like Steve, I know next to nothing about Pakistan. And I'm trying to compare with what you're saying with the little I know about radicals in, sorry, is that the word you don't want to use? Um, militants, whatever word you want to use in Indonesia. And some of the things sound familiar and some of the things don't. I mean, Indonesia is a very small beer compared with what's going on in Pakistan. But one of the things which sounds familiar is your um, blast radius analogy. <laughs> I think in recent years there have been more people killed in Indonesia by self-detonation of bombs than there have been innocents. I think considering. But the actual question I wanted to ask you was, you had that table there of uh, LET militants, their characteristics by education. You compared that with a number of segments of the Pakistani population. Uh, do you have any data that breaks up those militants into things like urban origin or rural origin, leadership as opposed to followership? Because mm -hmm. in Indonesia, the leadership is the one which is well-educated, <laughs> urban, and so on. The followers tend to be much less educated, less rich, and more rural. So the short answer is we do not have that data uh, because LET is very... Uh, very careful that it doesn't send its leaders into battle, right? They have a very short depth, and they, the, only, the only leaders that do consistently get whacked are the, um, the Jammu and Kashmir uh, uh, field commander, I mean, for lack of, a, lack of a better word. Those guys have a fairly short half-life. It's kind of like Al-Qaeda number three in Pakistan. They, they cycle through them pretty quickly. Um, and, and then the more you have to cycle through, the you know, the more difficult it is to actually get someone to take that position. So we don't know. But um, like Hava Saeed, for example, you know, he, he, he's a well-educated professor. But what we can tell from these guys is that they're well-educated relative to the population from which they draw, but they're underemployed. So there are two competing explanations for this. So if you're a USAID person, you're like, oh my God, we can create jobs and they won't be terrorists anymore. But the other possibility is that if you are a committed militant, you don't want full-time employment. So let's say that you could easily get a job at Citibank, but Citibank is not going to let you run off for three months to go do jihad training. You know, hey, I'm going to see you in October. Got some stuff in So, and that's why, that's why the numbers only get you so far. That's why the actual narratives themselves are more explanatory. And there's nothing in the narratives that say, I'm sick of being poor. Actually, quite the contrary. The narratives say, my family, we are excess consumers. You know, we have these cars, we live beyond our means, we take loans from the bank, we're living off of usury. 
we see in the narratives, and, and look, I want to be very clear, these are done on um, 10%, sequential 10% random samples, so it could very well be that I am missing all of the, I really hate being poor, and I expected a better life, and I, you know, that, it just be, I, I haven't gotten to those biographies yet, so big, giant asterisk. But right now, I'm not seeing evidence for the poor me, I'm poor. It's, it really is, so I kind of, uh, I've been working on a graphic about sort of people, and these biographies fall along this three-dimensional space. So one-dimensional space is, you know, secularity versus religious motivation. Another one is, for example, their perception of the battlefield on which they're fighting. So some will make these larger contributions to, you know, the, the UMA itself has been degraded and by participating in this one theater I'm helping in the uplift of the UMA. So another measure is very local, i.e. Kashmir, India, to the you know, to the other UMA. And the um, the, oh boy, I just completely blanked out the the, the um the other axis. The secularity, the oh yes, um, it's the kind of grievance that, that they're having. Ranging, and this is—it's not exactly the the secular religious. It's the the grievances. Um, is it partition? Like we have been we have been aggrieved in the following way. And and again, it's not exactly the UMA issue. It's about a specific thing that the individual or their family has experienced. So there are these different. And so the different biographies, if you can imagine, you can just plot them. I have, the image itself is kind of sloppy because I'm still working out how do, I, how do I really finalize these measures, which I'll do later in the project. But I just don't, I don't see the... Oh, the third measure is, is, a, is, it, is it a self-serving goal or is it a family? So in other words, I'm going to redeem myself or I'm going to redeem my family. Right? So these different measures are where some of these motivations tend to fall on. But poverty hasn't really been one of them. Two more questions. Three. I don't know. We'll have to see. I have to whip through them really quickly. One, two, three. One, so, so one first, then we'll have an answer, and then we'll. Come. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the talk very interesting and entertaining on an interesting topic. <laughs> um, I'm just interested in the origins of the organisations and others like it. Um, just interested in your take on the social and political conditions that gave rise to this organisation and others like it. I mean, I can think of a couple, but interested in your take on, on what was going on in the 80s. Oh, well, this is easy. This group, and it, again, it's a, it's a little bit of Four Lions, if you've seen that movie. They wanted to go to Afghanistan because they wanted to liberate Afghans from, from the Russians. But it's they just showed up to the party too late because by the time they got their act together, um, the Geneva Court had already been signed. And this is actually a really interesting part of their history because it tells you. Oh, oh dang it, my hand. Sorry, I have a, a really screwed up hand. Um, so, to tell you a little bit about their about their history. So, once they realized that they missed the jihad, <laughs> the jihad train just sailed past them. And I mix that metaphor on purpose. They they find it's like we don't have a place here because they do not believe in sectarian conflict. They 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 made a, a very deliberate decision. We are not going to be siding with one Muslim against another. And this happens regionally to coincide 
with massive Indian malfeasance in Kashmir. The Indians just... It stems from Prime Minister Indira Gandhi and her overuse of power, her destruction of secularism to, to personally, you know, arrogate to herself all kinds of powers and privileges for herself and her family. That she actually, in some ways, starts the Kashmir kerfuffle, you know, dismissing a properly elected government. Her son then organizes these dubious elections. And so Pakistan had been wanting to start an insurgency in Kashmir for a very long time, but failed. But after this, the whole place blows up. The timing is very propitious. And we also know that Zia understood this. Zia was Pakistan's uh, military dictator. He, he, we gave him the money, and then he decided how that money would be allocated. And not everyone get, got equal amounts of money. So he, he lavished more money upon those groups that he anticipated that he could swing to Kashmir. And that's what happened. So um, LET very quickly swings to Kashmir. And it's at some point, and, and again, the historiography of the organization isn't clear. They started on their own sui generis, their, their own steam. But at some point, they, they reached the attention of the ISI. And what was going on in Kashmir, so first, it's an indigenous Kashmiri organization with maybe a patina of Islamism. I don't sign on to it. It was entirely secular. So I'm not, I don't think the evidence supports that. But they didn't want to join Pakistan. But Pakistan supported them because they were the only game in town. And so while that was happening, Pakistan was working on another group called Hizb Mujahideen, which is supported by Jamaat Islami. They are overwhelmingly Kashmiri in their cadres. But because they're overwhelmingly Kashmiri, there's a limit to their brutality. So they basically did nuisance operations, you know, sabotage. So they're not going to go in and they're not going to just like, mow down a bunch of uh, people praying in a mosque they're not, or, or in a shrine. They're not going to do that. So enter Lashkar Taiba. Lashkar Taiba is mostly Punjabi. They're brutal as hell. And, and, and so what actually happens in the valley, Pakistan supports these different militant groups turning each other. So his tried to kill the JKLF boys and the LET boys. Tried to, you know, and then what happens is like the social Darwinism of terrorism. And then uh, they're not, they weren't even the, the latest entrance. The latest entrance is Jaish. Jaish, unlike Lashkar, does suicide bombing. So there is this combination of... Now, the Dale Bundy groups are quite different. The Dale Bundy groups have a lot more heavy foot uh, fingerprints of the ISI than LET does. So the, the way the ISI manages all of these Dale Bundy groups is largely by divide and conquer. So when it gets one group gets to be too big for bridges, it, it organizes a split, um, which is both, you can imagine, it's like, what what is that example? Like... Uh, you know, a hydra, whack off one head, it grows two. So you can question the, the utility of this, but I would say the Pakistanis got away with this until 2004, right? Once it got to be 2004, this strategy really begins to backfire, and now they're trying to, in various ways, with various levels of commitment, um, trying to clean up their mess. Does that answer your question, kind of? I'm really worried about the DNA thing. Four Lions is a great movie. You know. <laughs> Has anyone seen it? It's a British satirical movie about four guys who become jihadis. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen, and it's incredibly sad. But also based on a true story. Uh, based on a true story. And it, I mean, it's satire, it's pretty painful and close to the bone. <laughs> the crow born. The, the they put a bomb on a crow and they blow crows up on the street. The crow born IED. Uh, anyway, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
sometimes I worry about myself. Um, can I take these it's two so nice together? Now my husband, I, I will be able to say, this interview will prove it. I'm not the only one. Um, so I'm sorry to ask you to take, to take these two together. But can we do that? Okay. So, yeah. okay, I just wanted to ask because um, you said you interviewed uh, mothers and people mm-hmm. from uh, Pakistan. I don't do that. Which, uh, okay, because Farhat, Farhat hucked it. Farhat Huck? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm from Pakistan, yeah. from uh, Islamabad. Yeah. Okay, um, did you, uh, as we said, did you segregate those data? from uh, which provinces and which regions are you getting mm-hmm. it from? Oh, yes. Now, this we do. Remember, I do text. I don't do interviews. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't do interviews. Um, Farhat Huck did. But let me show you. This is yeah. This is where they're coming from. Oh, yeah, you came in late. Yeah, I came yeah, in. You came I in saw later. this yeah. because uh, here you said that it is... Um, because that is Sialkot, mm-hmm. right, Jammu and Kashmir mm-hmm. and Jhelum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That you said is not Kashmir, but it is predominantly Kashmir, like ancestral Kashmiri? No, no, okay, but we're, I'm not going to disagree with you. Yeah. My point is, though, that the majority of these guys are coming from nine districts yeah. in the Punjab. Yeah. Now, to play, to play further, to play further devil's advocate, to your devil's advocate, so the same advocate, um, it's entirely possible that some of these boys from the Punjab are Kashmiri. The top one. The one on the No, top. I mean, it's entirely possible that these guys in the dark red districts are, yeah. because, because we, here's the thing, we don't know their actual ethnicity, right, because they're using Kuniyats. Yeah, but I would tell from their names also. You didn't understand what I said. They're using Kuniyats, yes. so you won't know their name. Kuniyats from the spiritual uh, line? They're, they're, they're using nom de guerres. So you can't infer anything about their ethnicity from their Kuniyats. Like, their Kuniyats will be like, you know, son of Bin Qasim. That's okay. not going to tell you anything everything. about their ethnicity. Okay. Apart from that, from my, because I'm from Pakistan, mm-hmm. the uh, north part of it, where mm-hmm. the red lines are, that is the region that is ca- uh, touching Kashmir. Yeah. That's the Punjabi, uh, the Punjabi-speaking Punjabis mm-hmm. uh, of Punjab, which have their ancestral linkage to Kashmir. The mm-hmm. south area, where uh, which is at the bottom, mm-hmm. that is uh, the Saraiki-speaking, yeah. where the Lashkar-e-Taiba originated from, and where you, where all the br- very brutal kind of uh, all the acts happened there in they the south know, of they, Punjab. They didn't originate in the Saraiki speaking, but that's it. But but we're saying the same thing. Yeah. At the end of the day, you cannot escape the statistical truth that the majority of these guys are coming from ten districts in the Punjab. That you you, yeah. you can put, yeah. you can the arrange t- all the chairs around the the Titanic that you want. It's still a fact that the majority of these guys are coming from, Kashmir, from from the Punjab, not from Kashmir or any place else. What I do think is interesting is that in recent years, you can see this in Balochistan, but it's also been making progress into Sindh. Yeah. And in this tracks yeah. with all, you can go to Jamaat al uh, yeah. FIF's website, yeah. and they have annual reports, and they tell you all their activities. So everything that you said is not disputed, but my point is just very simply, the majority of these guys are coming from the Punjab, and you'll also note that generally close to the border yeah. with India, and, and I think in some of these like um, uh, um, 
Gujranwala is is an, is one of these districts, and so the districts that have these really terrible stories <coughs> of partition are are coming up in these districts. So I think there's a partition. We're almost out of time. One more question. And one simple question: Where does the money come from to operate the activities of LET, and how they sustain the money? So first of all. It's not that expensive to run. So do we really know how much? They don't, they don't, so Falat and Sonnet Foundation does publish their financials, money taken in and money taken out and how they do it. But, and so there are estimates that the annual operating cost is 100 million. And now, from my point of view, that number is just pulled out of someone's preferable orifice because there's no way you could know this. But let's, let's think about the problem a little bit differently. If you look at the Indian budget, and we can't do the same analysis of the Pakistan budget because they took all of their retirements and they put it in a civilian billet. And that was because they wanted, uh, and it was done, it wasn't a trick, but they wanted to give the World Bank some excuse to say that Pakistani spending on the defense is under 3% of the GDP. So, so we'll, have, we'll look at the Indian budget because they're, they're similar in a lot of ways. So 54% of that budget is spent on human costs, which is perquisites for retired and serving. And there's no reason to think that, in reality, the Pakistan budget's any different. Um, it's just like we have more transparency in the Indian budget, which is why I'm making that comparison. If you look at the human capital of the guys in my database, they fall somewhere in between an NCO and someone that could get into the PMA, the Pakistan Military Academy. So they're getting the human capital of a, of a fairly competent paramilitary slash, you know, almost like special operators, right? And they're getting it irrespective of what the cost is. When Pakistan's defense budget is like eight-ish billion, again, that excludes the retirement costs and the nuclear stuff that's tucked away in various places so that we can't see it. At a minimum, is eight billion. This is a drop in the bucket. And you're not paying retirements because they're not supposed to retire. They funeral are benefits? what? Wow. Funeral benefits. They do wow. pay funeral. They do pay funeral benefits. Okay. They do pay funeral benefits because um, I did a separate survey of militants' families about what kinds of benefits they got and from whom. So um, for so it, for some operators, the money that they were getting from the ISI was one lakh rupees. Um, there's a lot of volatility in the Pakistani rupee, so that was the number that I got in 2007. So one, and so probably around then the exchange rate was 80 rupees to the dollar. So I, I think it was something like a couple thousand dollars. And that was a one-time payment. Other people, I and mean, most people, didn't get anywhere near that amount. Um, sometimes they said that they would get easy gifts once a year from the organization or from some, you know, random dude in a shower kameez. So by, by, all, by all accounts, these guys have the firing power of a special operator unit at a cost that is just incomprehensibly low compared to what someone in uniform would, would, would cost. And unlike someone in uniform, there's plausible deniability, right? So this is... So people ask, will these guys ever give these guys up? The answer is no. 
not only is this an incredibly clever way for a resource-constrained country to fight an adversary, um, Pakistan has also never borne any direct costs. It's never been directly punished for this. I mean, look at Pulwama. I mean, Pakistan actually managed to come out looking pretty good by the time that whole fiasco was resolved. What a way to end. What a place to end, yes. <laughs> but I think we better have. Uh, thanks so much, everybody, for coming along today. And let me also ask you to thank Christine for coming all the way over thank here you. and thank talking you. to us today.